The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, something I've discovered over the years in, in, in my brief decade or so of pastoral ministry is that sometimes Christians have a bit of a funny relationship with the notion of works. Christians sometimes have a a bit of a funny relationship with the notion of works. There's some camps or traditions, as soon as you start talking about good works, or as soon as you start talking about obeying the commands of Jesus, we get real tense about it. We get real kind of clammed up at the notion of doing good works in the name of Jesus. Get kind of nervous and shaky about overplaying that particular hand. We don't want to talk too much about obeying the commands of Jesus or about performing good works because it could really easily slip into this kind of works-based, performance-based religion. We can sometimes get a little bit funny when it comes to the topic of works. Now, what the Scriptures teach us that's really clear is that as Christians, we are not saved on the basis of works. In other words, our standing before God is not dependent on the stuff that we do. Rather, our standing before God is dependent on our response to Jesus. Do we or do we not believe on Jesus as the one who atoned for our sin? We have a a heart of faith in Jesus, God's God's mercy to send His Son to die in our place. We, We believe in that. We are granted full stop righteousness. But the Scripture also teaches that though we are saved by faith alone, it's not a faith that remains alone. In other words, we believe in Jesus by grace through faith, not by works, and then we are set free for a life of good works in the name of Jesus. We're saved by Jesus, permanently cemented, embedded. Our name is carved in diamond and granite and rock forever by the grace of Jesus. And then we are set free to go behave in in, in the manner that Christ would have us to behave, to live lives of good works. Something you'll see all over the New Testament is this emphasis on works, on living in righteousness, Interestingly, we see it all over the Gospels where Jesus does all of these miracles and these good works and these acts of mercy. Jesus' life is characterized by like good deed stacked on good deed stacked on good deed. In fact, there's, there's these seasons in Jesus' ministry where he travels around just performing these good deeds left and right, just bam, just whipping them out, blessing everyone that he encounters. Uh, the, the guy who wrote the book of Acts recording the early church Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke, and Luke is especially, kind of carries this emphasis of Jesus' concern for the lowly, and Jesus' teaching about caring for the lowly, and about performing good works for the lowly and on behalf of the lowly. The same is true with other Gospels. Again, it's all over these stories of Jesus. And even if you're not very familiar with the New Testament, you probably at least know that Jesus was constantly going about performing exorcisms and healings and miracles. Now, as we read through the book of Acts, we actually see the disciples picking up on Jesus' examples and doing the exact same thing. The disciples in the story of Acts performing good deeds, these amazing, miraculous works, like as we'll see, that look freakishly like the works that Jesus himself performed. Now, we've been studying through the book of Acts, and as we mentioned, uh, the book of Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke. 
Acts is about the earliest Christians. It's about the, the spread of the gospel in the church in the earliest years expanding out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. We, we've said that Acts is a book that's helpful in thinking about our mission and our calling as God's people, especially as we turn our attention to this move at Ridgewood. Now, as we look at our passage tonight, what we're going to see is the disciples do these amazing things in the name of Jesus, doing these really impressive impressions of Jesus, we might say, doing stuff that's really similar to the stuff that Jesus did. And so the question is, what are we to make of that? What are we to make of the fact that the disciples seem to be almost literally replaying some of the amazing works that Jesus himself did? Or maybe we could zoom out and ask more broadly, how are we to think about good works? Acts of mercy and compassion and the things that the disciples do in this passage. Miraculous, merciful acts and those mundane, very ordinary, merciful acts. And again, not just the disciples then, but the disciples who were doing those things today, here in Greer and all over the world. So in our passage, we're going to see two healings, and then we're going to have a lesson for us, I think, that speaks about our works and the, the, the calling for good works that the Lord Jesus places on us. All right, let's look at the first of these healings in Acts chapter 9, verse 32. We're going to read that again. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a, ma- a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Okay, so uh, the last couple of weeks we have seen a different, couple of different characters. Last week we saw the story of Saul, how Saul's life was uh, upended and how he was called and conscripted into ministry for Jesus. Now the chapter, or the scriptures rather, turn their focus on Peter. His story is kind of the focus of the next few chapters before it then shifts to Saul. Peter, we're told here, is probably on some kind of preaching tour. It says that he's going here and there. So he's probably traveling about in these region, regions preaching the gospel. Tells us that he goes down to the saints who were at Lydda. Now, Lydda is a city that's west of Jerusalem on the way to the coastal cities of Palestine. And it says that he goes down to the saints that are located there. And, and one thing I wish we could spend more time on, but one thing that I, I love so far in the book of Acts is the language that it uses to describe Christians. Now, we remember that maybe some of the, the, the language we use probably wasn't being used regularly to describe Christians then. In fact, we know in Acts chapter 13 is the first time that Christians are called Christians. But what does it say here in these first verses about the believers? What's the designation that's used for them there? The passage tonight, it says that the Christians are saints. That Peter goes down to the saints who were at Lydda. Literally, the holy ones. The saints. Later on in the chapter, Christians are referred to as disciples, literally students of Jesus. Last week, we saw Christians as as being those as those being described as as those belonging to the way of Jesus. And each of these ideas alone are worthy of reflection. But Christian, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are a saint. You are a saint. You are among the holy ones. Objectively, in Christ, his status is given to you. You are set apart as his people, his holy people. And Christian, you are a saint. Isn't that amazing? By the grace of God in Christ, we receive Jesus' righteousness and we are forever cataloged as saints. The holy ones set apart by God's grace for God's purposes. 
Now, Peter goes down to Lydda. He encounters the saints that are at Lydda. And then we're told that he encounters a paralytic, probably one of the saints, a man named Aeneas. We're told that Aeneas is... He's either been bedridden for eight years or he's been bedridden since he was eight years old. So the, the language isn't super clear there. But either way, the point remains that Aeneas is a man that has been paralyzed for a significant length of time. Verse 34. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. I love how matter of fact this encounter is kind of portrayed here. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately Aeneas rose. So Peter, on this preaching tour, he encounters Aeneas. We're not told if Aeneas asked for it. We're not told if his friends asked for it. We're not told the circumstances that surround this encounter. All that we're told is that Peter heals Aeneas in the name of Jesus, tells him to rise and make his bed, and immediately Aeneas rose. Immediately this man begins to walk. Now, if we placed ourselves maybe in this encounter, and, and we, we see that there's a man who has been paralyzed, bedridden, either for eight years or since he was eight years old, it would be incredible in like the, the most literal sense of that word. It would be incredible. It would be unbelievable to see Peter raise this guy, to, to call him up out of his paralysis and for this man's limbs to be set free. Aeneas, rise, and he does. Now, as we're reading this passage, it might actually remind us of another passage. And if maybe we're reading the book of Acts in conjunction with the book of Luke, it would sound a lot like another story that we've already read in these two books. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 5. We'll start in verse 17. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. All right, so what's really interesting about the book of Luke is the way that it describes the, the Spirit in the early chapters descending from heaven onto Jesus and then unleashing Jesus for ministry. In fact, it's probably very likely that it's patterned the exact same way in Acts chapter 2 to, to like recall in the reader's head that what ha in the way that Jesus is empowered and sent out by the Spirit, so the church is empowered and sent out by the Spirit. The, the power of the Lord, the Spirit, is with Jesus to heal. Verse 18, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and left, left him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things 
today. Do we see what's happening here in the story of Peter and Aeneas? It seems like Luke wants us to recall this particular encounter, especially especially because of the language surrounding the command to rise, get up, and make your bed. Peter, it seems, we might say, is channeling, I guess we could literally say, is channeling the spirit of Jesus and performing this miracle on Aeneas. In fact, in verse 34, what does Peter say? I heal you with the power that's been given to me. I call down the power from heaven to bring healing. What does he say? Verse 34, Jesus Christ heals you. And here we start to get a hint as to what these good works are all about. Peter is replaying one of Jesus' miracles, or more accurately, we could say it like this. Jesus is doing what Jesus has always done, but through his disciples. And what's the result? Verse 35, the same thing that happens in Luke chapter 5. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas, and they turned to the Lord. They were amazed. They couldn't believe that this guy, had, had his, his limbs were, were reactivated and he got up out of the bed, that Peter had done this in the name of Jesus. And the result is that they turned to the Lord. They believe the gospel that Peter has gone about preaching in this region. They believe. Now let's pause for a second and consider, what is the purpose of these miraculous acts of mercy in the New Testament? That's, 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 that are performed by, by both Jesus and the disciples. Like, why, why do Jesus and the disciples going, go, go about doing these miraculous acts in the way that they do? The first thing, first thing, and we see it in this passage and in the Luke chapter 5 passage, is this. They perform these miracles to confirm the message of the gospel. To confirm the message of the gospel. Jesus, in the Luke chapter 5 passage, he says, it would, be, it would be really easy for me to stand up and say, man, your sins are forgiven. And, and as far as you know, like you've not seen the divine transaction behind that. So P- Jesus is saying it would be very easy for me to just declare that. But so that you know with absolute assurance that I have the ability to do that, let me also heal this guy's paralysis. When, when Jesus and the disciples go about performing these miracles, they're doing it to confirm that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and that the Spirit of Jesus has indeed come down from heaven and that the gospel has indeed been unleashed into the world. In verses 35 and verse 42 below, we see that the disciples, that, that the, the message of the gospel is legitimized by these miraculous works. And we and we've said this before as we've been studying through Acts, even today, it's probably the case that miraculous works accompany the, the new inbreaking of the gospel in regions all around the world. Again, we've said this before, that it's probably best to understand these, these miracles in passages like this, not as normative. Like, this is, this is probably not intended to be a weekly occurrence in, in the life of the Christian gathering. It's not maybe necessarily intended to be a part of our regular, everyday experience. But it does seem to be the case, both in Scripture and in our experience in history, that accompanying the inbreaking of the gospel in new regions is a kind of miraculous attestation to the legitimacy of this message. These miracles serve as a testifying kind of role. But of course, at the end of the day, God can do whatever God wants to do, and if God wants to grant miracles, He can grant them in the manner that He chooses to grant them. And it's also worth pointing out that these uh, these miracles don't supplant or replace gospel proclamation. They they run in tandem with it and support the preaching of the gospel. 
That's the first reason. But there's a second reason that I think these miracles are in the Scriptures. They preview the coming kingdom of God. They preview the coming kingdom of God. Now, I, I know that there's a lot of rooms here, but uh, uh, excuse me, a lot of nerds in this room, but I'm not going to assume that all of you are nerds. Who's read the Chronicles of Narnia? Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe? All right, okay. Okay, I should assume that you're all nerds, because that's pretty much the majority. <laughs> so, the Chronicles of Narnia, written by one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the story, essentially, it's this idea that these kids are magically transported into the world of Narnia. They go through this wardrobe while playing hide-and-go-seek, and they, they kind of slip into this imaginary fantasy world, Narnia. And as they, they make their way into Narnia, they find out that this place is ruled by this evil, uh, spell-casting, Turkish delight-dishing white witch. And we're told that the white witch, she's this unjust ruler, this unjust queen. It's not her, her place to, to rule over the land of Narnia. And she has stricken the, the land with, with a winter that never recedes. Uh, Lewis says it's always winter but never Christmas. So it's just this kind of horrible, barren, cold, dark, kind of awful picture of this queen's rule. But we're told that there's a true king, and this true king is going to make his reappearance. And the, as the kids enter into Narnia, they hear about the true king, this lion who's named Aslan, who's the true ruler over the land of Narnia. And they begin to hear whispers that Aslan is on the move. And as Aslan is on the move, as Aslan begins to make appearances, everywhere he goes, winter begins to recede. The snow begins to melt. The birds begin to sing again. The grass begins to, to show itself once more. The flowers begin to bud. Everywhere Aslan goes, winter recedes and spring and life bursts forth. It seems like what's happening in the New Testament, in the ministry of Jesus, and in the ministry of the disciples, is that they, as they go about performing these miracles, what they're showing is that the true king has arrived and that winter cannot help but recede in his presence. And at, the, at the, the mention of his name, life and spring and budding flower up. Sin and death is overcome by Jesus. And these miracles demonstrate what Jesus is going to do at the end of days when he makes all sad things untrue. He makes everything right and winter is gone forever. So these miracles, they, they legitimize the message of the gospel, but they're also a promise. They are a, a promise for us. That these things that are true, kind of, kind of in miniature, these, these little nuggets of stories of healing and of, and of exorcisms and of new life being granted, these things are a promise for us that what is true in these moments will be true of everything one day when the Lord Jesus returns. Healing number two, verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. I just, I, it's just an unfortunate name. We can just all agree really quick to just chuckle. It's an unfortunate. We've been calling each other Dorcas in our house all week. It's an unfortunate name. <laughs> the disciple named Tabitha, which Tabitha is the, the Aramaic name. Dorcas is translated into Greek. And then I love this. She was full of good works and acts of charity. So 12 miles to the west of Joppa, uh, of Lydda, is Joppa, this coastal port city. There's a disciple in this city named Tabitha. Again, that's her Aramaic name, but translated into Greek, it's Dorcas. And what does it say about Dorcas? She was full of good works and acts of charity. Don't you just love that imagery? That she's 
full of good works. Luke tells us she's a disciple, a student of Jesus, evidently behaving just like her master, full of good works and charity. She's like a fountain just brimming over with goodness. In verse 39, we're told exactly what these good works are. In verse 39, after she's passed, it says that Peter is presented with tunics and clothing that she made for widows. So she, she quietly committed herself to making clothes for these widows, just this kind of fruitful, productive, full of good deeds kind of person. Just this weekend, uh, my wife and I were talking about wanting to be exactly like this. And, uh, and Emily and I were talking about this as Emily was making a bunch of pancakes for college students that came over to her house on Friday night. We, we just want to kind of have this happy generosity that's rooted in Jesus, that's brimming over out of love, from love for Jesus, that's brimming over in hospitality and fruitfulness and, and pancakes when there's a need to make pancakes, right? As I was reading this passage, I mean, I just... Don't you know people who are like Dorcas, full of good works and acts of charity? Maybe there's not much to behold there, but they're just full of goodness, man, like, like an oak tree just bursting out of the ground, providing shade for others. Verse 37, and those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since little was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Dorcas, this beloved disciple, tragically dies. They're only 12 miles away from hearing where, G, where, where Peter was. Maybe they got word of the miracle that Peter performed, and they say, Peter, come, we need your help. Verse 39, so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Peter goes into the upper room and is greeted by widows weeping. They're showing Peter the fruit of Dorcas's good works. See what she made us. Look at this tunic that Dorcas made for me. Again, evidently, this is a tremendous loss to this Christian community, the loss of this woman. I remember when I was a teenager, I think I was a teenager, I don't remember the date exactly. There was a lady in my church, uh, the church I grew up in, named Miss Roper. And Miss Roper had passed away sometime in my high school years. But she had taught the kindergarten Sunday school class at our church for something like 60 years. She, she taught the kindergarten, let me say that again, the kindergarten Sunday school class at our church for something like 60 years. That is almost double my lifespan. That is insane. Six decades she taught kindergartners every single Sunday. Think about that. It's unbelievable. The picture that's painted here of Dorcas is like this, this pillar of this community. When she passes, I mean, they feel it, right? It's a, it's a punch to the gut. They have lost someone significant. These believers are heartbroken. Verse 40, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave, uh, he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So Peter raises her from the dead. He prays, and he says, Tabitha, arise. And she does. In verse 41, he presents her alive to the saints and widows and is greeted with, we can only imagine, much rejoicing. And the result, much like the healing of Aeneas in verse 42, is belief. People see this miracle, and they believe. Now turn to Mark chapter 5.
Again, this story is very similar to another story in the New Testament. We'll start in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again uh, in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with them. Verse 35, skip down. While he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But he, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, no one to allow him to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, Jesus turning mourning into laughter. I love that. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with them and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Talitha, rise, Jesus says. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement and he strictly charged them that no one should know something that that, uh, that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Do you see what's happened here in Acts chapter 9? When comparing it to Mark chapter 5. Jesus in this passage is beckoned to come care for this sick girl like Peter. Jesus agrees to help her. He arrives to mourners like Peter. He sends everyone out like Peter. He takes her by the hand like Peter and says, Talitha, rise, which coincidentally is one letter different from Tabitha, rise. In each of these miracles, Peter is like his Savior, performing these unbelievable acts of mercy, and Luke wants us to see that. So here's our question. What are we to make of good works? The acts of mercy and compassion that the disciples do in this passage, that disciples do today all over the world, both miraculous and otherwise. What are we to do with these similarities with Jesus' own ministry? And I think the message here for us tonight is exactly this. Jesus' ministry continues in us. The pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John continue in the pages of the lives of the saints at Ridgewood Church and Greer First Baptist Church and Resurrection Church and every church that professes Christ all over the planet. Jesus' ministry continues in us, in you, exactly where Jesus puts you. Have you ever thought about what it means that we are Jesus' body? What does it mean that we are Jesus' body? Is that a, just a clever metaphor that Paul uses to talk about why we should all get along? You know, livers and kidneys, they need to be at peace so y'all don't fuss. Is that what Paul is saying here? The Scriptures tell us that Jesus is the head and we are his body, which means that we are almost, in, in an almost very literal way, Jesus' limbs in the world. 
Jesus' ministry continues in us. He works by his spirit through his church. He did in Peter's day and he does in our day. We drew attention to this when we first opened Acts But it begins with this introduction where Luke is introducing his reader to the book. He's he's speaking about the gospel of Luke. And he says, in my first book, I told you about all of the things that Jesus began to do. The implication is, I'm fixing to tell you about all of the things that Jesus continues to do through his church. And in this passage, I think we're given both Peter and Dorcas as examples, exhibit A and B of what it means for Jesus to work through his people. Peter, obviously recalling these amazing miracles that Jesus did, and we're also told that Dorcas is a disciple, a student of Jesus, full of good works and acts of charity. Jesus' ministry continues, present tense, and real time, for real, actually, September 4th, 2022, in us, friends. Now, of course, Jesus is foundational. Of course, his work on the cross is once for all. It is unrepeatable, and it is unique. Jesus dies to save sinners once for all. We are saved by grace through faith. But then we are filled with Jesus' own spirit made a part of Jesus' very body, and then we are unleashed to go about doing the work of the Lord Jesus in the world, full of good works and acts of charity. Is that awesome? The likelihood of us, like Peter, raising people from the dead is probably not real likely. We, we may not rise, raise people from the dead. We may not cast out demons. We, we may not heal paralytics. But we may teach kindergartners and Sunday school for 60 years. Or we might sew tunics and other garments for widows. Or we might organize childcare for one of our members whose husband was recently deployed. Or we might take a a meal to someone who is grieving. Or we might take a meal to somebody who's rejoicing. Or we might open our home to host community groups. Or maybe we adopt orphans. Or maybe we love refugees. Or maybe we give to missionaries sacrificially. Or maybe we pray for the, the bumps and the bruises and the aches and the pains of the people in our community group. Or maybe we give people rides to church. Maybe we do any of these things and in doing so, continue the work of the Lord Jesus in his world. And like miracles, our good works also serve two ends. They confirm the gospel that we preach. They don't replace gospel proclamation, but they confirm, they legitimize the gospel we preach, and they preview the coming kingdom. As we go about doing acts of mercy and acts of charity like Dorcas, doing these small, simple things, we are a picture of the world that is to come a world that is full of goodness and justice and brimming over with mercy and compassion. Jesus' ministry continues in us, and sometimes it looks like these very simple things. And so the question is, what works has the Lord Jesus prepared for me to walk in? This evening, this week, how can I put on Christ where Christ puts me? As a as an older saint, as a, as a young mom, as a, a single person in school, as a, as a dad working a job he hates, whatever it is, how can I put on Christ where Christ puts me and live out Jesus' ministry in real time? If you're here tonight and you are heavy-hearted, and the, the thought of 
Jesus' ministry continuing in you seems like a burden too heavy to bear, I would just say, friends, Jesus is a God of abundance who spills over into us and who gives us his very life and his very spirit. And as we look at Jesus, we are compelled by Jesus' work towards us to offer a similar work to others. The mercy, capital M mercy that Jesus gave to us is so full and so endless and so impossibly, impossibly unfathomable, impossible flammably. It's all of that. Because it's so much that we have infinite resources to draw from as we go about doing these acts of mercy and compassion, kindness, generosity for people in the world. For the sake of Jesus, by the power of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus, as he works himself out in us, present tense. If you're here tonight and, you have, and you're not a believer and most of what I've said feels like nonsense to you, hear only this. The Lord Jesus died for your sin. The Lord Jesus bears all of your wrongdoing on his shoulders in order that you could be reconciled to his Father, you could be filled with his Spirit, and so that you could be unleashed from your own head and your own selfishness and released into the world for a life of wholeness, fullness, hope, and goodness. Christ offers that for anyone who would turn from their sins, turn from their way of being and doing things, and turn to Christ in faith and receive the gift of the Spirit. On our bulletins, we always try and provide some questions for reflection that's uh, just intended for us to, to kind of mull over and wrestle through during the week. In these next few moments, I'm going to pray, and the band's just going to play a little music. And in that time, we always ask folks to just, just consider what, what it is that the Spirit might be directing them towards, what, how the Spirit might be prodding them in these moments. Uh, you can find those questions for reflection at the bottom of your bulletin. I'll pray, and then we can pause and consider. Lord Jesus, we come to you first because you came to us. We love you because you first loved us, and we pray that as we think about uh, what you were calling us into, we pray that we would be uh, taken up by just the, the sheer magnitude of, of grace and mercy that you've shown us. I pray that you would give us clarity on how, how it is that we would respond to the things that have been said tonight. I pray that you give us clarity on putting on Christ where you put us. And I pray that we would honor you in all the things that we do and all the things that we say. And we do pray that our church would be a church that is full of good deeds and acts of charity, like Dorcas. We pray, Lord Jesus, that your spirit would be active among us and that maybe it's not evident through uh, the most dramatic displays of the spirit's power, but maybe it's evident through long faithfulness that's, that's evident after decades. We pray for that kind of commitment, Lord Jesus, and that kind of steadfastness, and pray that you would work that out in us. Again, we pray that you would give us clarity on how we're to respond, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would work in us as Ridgewood Church. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.